People seem to really care about abortion. Last week was the biggest week at presidential politics for America all year. Hundreds of combined readers and listeners were spellbound by last week's dramatic developments at the Supreme Court. For my part, I wrote and discussed how both the Dobbs v. Jackson ruling and the fact that there was a Supreme Court leak at all are each really big deals and deserve attention from the media and our lawmakers. Although, depending on one's partisanship, they've chosen to emphasize as one or the other. I also discussed the potential political implications of Roe v. Wade getting overturned, including how the ruling might be a badly needed adrenaline boost into the arm of a weakening Democratic Party. Today, however, I want to speculate about where else this conservative-leaning Supreme Court might make itself felt. There's one prior Supreme Court case in particular that might be in its crosshairs. 2015's Obergefell v. Hodges, which legalized same-sex marriage coast to coast. If the court applies the same logic to Obergefell as it did Roe, I'm not sure how long the precedent will last. Today, I want to consider how safe Obergefell and same-sex marriage are in the United States. I'm Ian Cheney, and this is another judicial edition of Presidential Politics for America. To consider the relationship between this conservative Supreme Court majority and same-sex marriage, I want to ask and answer five questions. Number one, what was Obergefell v. Hodges? Number two, how might Justice Alito's leaked Dobbs reasoning relate to Obergefell? Number three, would this Supreme Court actually act on this reasoning if a case challenged Obergefell? Number four, what are the best pro-Roe and pro-Obergefell legal arguments? And number five, what are the political implications of a threatened Obergefell? Let's begin. Question number one. What was Obergefell v. Hodges? Same-sex marriage is a recent practice in the United States. As late as the 1990s, the Defense of Marriage Act, or DOMA, passed through Congress with large majorities in both chambers, including a majority of Democrats. It said that marriage is between a man and a woman, that the federal government would not recognize same-sex marriage, and that a state was permitted to ignore same-sex marriage licenses from outside its jurisdiction. It wasn't until 2004, less than two decades ago, that the first U.S. state, liberal Massachusetts, legalized same-sex marriage. A few years later, other states began joining it, mostly in Democratic-leaning states. Despite this state-by-state access, the federal government, still operating under DOMA, did not recognize same-sex marriage. This law came under judicial scrutiny with the case United States v. Windsor in 2013. In 2009, Edith Windsor's wife, Thea C. Spire, died. Windsor and Spire had been married in Canada and then moved to New York, who by then recognized their marriage. When Spire died, Windsor was hoping to enjoy the benefits of spousal exemptions from federal estate taxes, 
But since the federal government still did not recognize same-sex marriage, she had to pay $350,000. She sued the federal government, claiming a violation of equal protection prescribed by the Due Process Clause of the Fifth Amendment. Windsor won the case in a narrow 5-4 decision. Perennial swing justice Anthony Kennedy voted with the liberal justices and was tabbed to write the majority decision. He argued that Section 3 of DOMA, the part that emphasized the federal government's non-recognition of same-sex marriage, did not provide, quote, equal dignity to same-sex marriages, end quote, and that parts of the law acted, quote, as a deprivation of the liberty of the person protected by the Fifth Amendment. Therefore, Section 3 of DOMA was struck down. Still, despite Windsor's win overturning Section 3, enforcing the federal government to recognize same-sex marriages, individual states could still deny such recognition, a protection covered under Section 2 of DOMA and not overturned by the court. Enter Obergefell v. Hodges. James Obergefell and his partner, John Arthur, lived in Ohio. As the two men monitored Windsor's victory in June of 2013, Arthur was losing a fight against ALS, better known as Lou Gehrig's disease. Two weeks after the decision, the inspired couple flew from Ohio, where same-sex marriage was not recognized, to Maryland, where it was. They got off the plane, got married, then flew home to Ohio. Arthur died in October. Despite their marriage in Maryland, Ohio did not recognize Obergefell as the surviving spouse on the death certificate. Obergefell sued the state. Richard Hodges, as the director of the Ohio Department of Public Health, was tabbed as the lead defendant, and so the case became Obergefell v. Hodges. The case wound its way to the Supreme Court by 2015, where Obergefell won. Justice Kennedy, again siding with the liberal justices for a slim 5-4 majority, wrote that, quote, the right to marry is a fundamental right inherent in the liberty of the person, end quote. The majority cited the due process and equal protection clauses of the 14th Amendment, which mandated that every state must provide due process and equal protection under the law to its citizens. The court instructed states to both recognize out-of-state same-sex marriage licenses and grant licenses in their own state as well. Same-sex marriage has since been protected coast to coast. It was a huge win for marriage equality advocates. But that sets up question number two. How might Justice Alito's leaked Dobbs v. Jackson reasoning relate to Obergefell v. Hodges? As I discussed last week, the central parts of the majority's reasoning in Dobbs is that A, Roe was wrong to call abortion a constitutional right, B, abortion rights aren't, quote, deeply rooted in this nation's history, and therefore, C, abortion is a question that should be left to the states to decide. To best understand why Dobbs might set up overturning Obergefell, we first want to understand why the Dobbs decision, once official, overturns Roe. Recall from my March series on abortion that a key precedent used in Roe was Griswold v. Connecticut from eight years before Roe. Estelle Griswold sued to overturn a Connecticut law 
prohibiting contraception. And the court sided with her after establishing we have a right to privacy, despite the Constitution never expressly saying we had one. The court reasoned its way there by combining elements of the First, Third, Fourth, and Fifth Amendments to show that our constitutional framers intended us to have a right to privacy, even if they never explicitly stated it. Meanwhile, the Ninth Amendment says we retain certain unenumerated rights, that is, rights not written down in the Bill of Rights. In other words, just because a right wasn't written down doesn't mean we don't have it. In Griswold v. Connecticut, the court determined a right to privacy is one such right. Once the right to privacy was established as an implied right, the Roe court used it to argue that a woman and her doctor could privately make an abortion decision if it was early enough in the pregnancy. Further, through the 14th Amendment's Due Process Clause, no state could restrict this right. In sum, the implied right to privacy made possible the implied right to an abortion. As we learned last week, however, as easily as one can find implied rights, another can disagree. This week, we learned that Justice Alito and the conservative majority determined that piling one implied right on top of another was stretching unenumerated rights too far, and that the Due Process Clause of the, of the 14th Amendment should therefore not bind the states to observe that right. This court, if the leaked ruling holds, has determined states should be able to decide their own abortion laws. We have to wonder then, if this court disagrees with one implied right, what other implied unenumerated rights might fall next? What other rights not mentioned in the Constitution will the court determine should be left to the states to decide? The right to marry an adult of the same sex, perhaps? And that sets up important question number three. Would this Supreme Court actually act on this reasoning? I've seen a lot of commentary that anyone worried about the court overturning Obergefell is being irrational and getting swept up in the emotions of the last week. You know, women, am I right? I'm not so sure. First, consider the sheer age of each precedent. This January, Roe entered its 50th year on the books. Obergefell hasn't even been around for seven. Roe felt ingrained into American society, culture, and politics. During oral arguments, Justice Elena Kagan emphasized the reliance Americans have on access to legal abortion. Same-sex marriage, however, is far younger than abortion is. And, as a parent and a husband, I can say having a child was a lot more life-altering than the marriage that preceded it. Second, same-sex marriage's popularity and acceptance does not protect Obergefell. True, whereas abortion has remained a divisive political issue since Roe, same-sex marriage has grown more accepted by the American people once it was dropped from political discourse in the years since Windsor and Obergefell. Last year, Gallup recorded a record high of 70% support for it. On the other hand, support for Roe is nearly that high, but that did not deter the Supreme Court majority. To be fair, the court isn't supposed to care about popularity. 
Only our House of Representatives was created to reflect the will of the people. The Senate was created to represent the desires of the states. The presidency was created to represent the interests of the nation. And the federal courts are meant to apply the meaning of the Constitution, not measure popularity. This court clearly used its insulation when it voted against Roe, despite about two-thirds of Americans supporting the precedent. The SCOTUS majority simply doesn't care about what's popular. And so that alone is a poor defense of Obergefell's safety. What's more, we should keep in mind that the 70% of the country that supports same-sex marriage is not evenly distributed. Support for same-sex marriage is sky-high in blue areas of the country, but red areas lag behind. A handful of states still don't have majority support for it. This is important for the same reason Mississippi's opposition to abortion is important. All it takes is one state to challenge same-sex marriage up to the Supreme Court, and its advocates will absolutely point to Dobbs and ask the court to apply the same reasoning that it did in Dobbs. SCOTUS will have painted itself into a corner, and some justices will vote to overturn Obergefell, either because they wish to maintain constitutional consistency, or because they are truly opposed to same-sex marriage, or both. Some states have laws on the books banning same-sex marriage and or same-sex unions, and some have laws that don't recognize out-of-state unions. These statutes are nullified by Obergefell, but if the case were to be overturned, these bans would return until the legislature acts, not unlike the abortion trigger laws getting so much attention these days. I'm skeptical Republican legislatures and governors would move quickly to reverse these laws, especially after a hypothetical high-profile Supreme Court case allows religious conservatives and right-leaning media to reorganize opposition to same-sex marriage. I suspect an anti-Obergefell groundswell is waiting for Dobbs to go official. I've already seen conservative crusader Ben Shapiro opine that, quote, if we had a Supreme Court worth its salt, they would overturn Obergefell. A compelling argument that the court won't use Dobbs to overturn Obergefell comes from citing Justice Alito's own words in the leaked draft. He was precise, calling abortion rights, quote, fundamentally different from other established in previous rulings involving, quote, intimate sexual relations, contraception, and marriage. Alito assures us that precedents like Griswold, which established a right to privacy and access to contraception, and Loving v. Virginia from 1967, which established a right to interracial marriage, are safe. He said, nothing in this opinion should be understood to cast doubts on precedents that do not concern abortion. If this is true, we are overreacting. It's reasonable to speculate, however, that this assurance from Alito is merely some sugar to help the medicine go down. Although Alito clarifies that Dobbs isn't overturning anything else outside of the abortion rulings Roe and Casey, particularly the precedents that were used in the Roe decision, the question is whether we can divine future rulings based on the majority's analysis. Let's first keep in mind that Alito engineers his own escape hatch for future rulings. Alito's majority decision is protective of precedents established before Roe, like the right to privacy, contraception, and interracial marriage. But remember that Obergefell comes well after Roe. As for whether Alito and the conservative majority will use that escape hatch, 
we should study their record. We can start by looking back at who dissented in Windsor and Obergefell. Current Justices Roberts, Thomas, and Alito all dissented, as did the late Antonin Scalia. Scalia's Windsor dissent, signed onto by Justice Thomas, felt that, quote, this case is about power in several respects. It is about the power of our people to govern themselves and the power of this court to pronounce the law. Today's opinion aggrandizes the latter, he lamented. Scalia and Thomas also said that, quote, the Constitution does not guarantee the right to enter into a same-sex marriage. They clearly believe that states should get to make their own determination. Justice Alito wrote a separate dissent in Windsor, but he similarly argued that, quote, same-sex marriage presents a highly emotional and important question of public policy, but not a difficult question of constitutional law, end quote. In other words, crafters of public policy, that is, the elected political branches at the federal and state levels, should decide on the issue, not the court. Two years later, in his Obergefell dissent, Alito targeted the implied rights argument he'd later shoot down in Dobbs, even using the, quote, deeply rooted language, which he'd return. Quoting from an earlier Supreme Court case, 1997's Washington v. Glucksburg, he argued that, quote, our precedents have required that implied fundamental rights be objectively deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition, end quote. Thomas and Alito's dissents in Windsor and Obergefell quite clearly line up with their Dobbs v. Jackson reasoning. Only now, they're not dissenters at all. They're in the majority. In the years after Obergefell, Thomas and Alito reconveyed their distaste for it. Remember that Rowan County, Kentucky clerk, Kim Davis? Shortly after Obergefell, Davis cited her religious objection, and later God's authority, when refusing to grant marriage certificates to same-sex couples and everyone else who applied for them. She faced a lawsuit, Miller v. Davis, and Eastern Kentucky's federal district court sided against her, instructing Davis to resume issuing marriage licenses. Appeals to the circuit court and Supreme Court failed, but when the Supreme Court weighed in, Thomas and Alito used the opportunity to criticize Obergefell. Thomas, joined by Alito, argued the case has, quote, ruinous consequences for religious liberty, end quote, and that it picked a, quote, novel constitutional right over the religious liberty interests explicitly protected in the First Amendment. And by doing so undemocratically, the court has created a problem that only it can fix, end quote. That's right a problem only it can fix. To this humble writer, that certainly sounds like we have some justices looking to overturn Obergefell. Although Thomas and Alito are only two justices, Dobbs taught us that post-Obergefell justices Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett appear to see states' rights in the same way. I think we can guess how they would vote on a similar case in the future. What liberals need to do is marshal legal arguments, not emotional ones, that could peel off at least one of these justices. That brings us to question number four. What are the best pro-Roe and Obergefell legal arguments? 
It's important to separate political desires from constitutionality. The former doesn't win in court, but understanding the latter just might. Merely wanting something to be a right is not how the law handles things, nor should it. If we all chose to identify our own rights, we'd have so many interpretations of it that some rights would infringe on others. We also don't decide these things by polling or majority vote, as that could lead to considerable instability in law. Instead, working inside of our legal framework is the sensible approach, or so goes the argument of boring pragmatists like me. And so supporters of Roe and Obergefell, rather than making a case based around emotions or mantras, should grapple with the legal arguments made by their opponents. With that in mind, it's worth acknowledging that the Dobbs majority has made a cogent point, as did the Roe and Obergefell dissents. Abortion and same-sex marriage are not in the Constitution, nor is there federal legislation passed to protect those practices. That being so, the Tenth Amendment feels applicable when it says the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively, or to the people. From that amendment alone, it does appear the states should get to decide on these questions. Beyond the lack of explicit constitutional text regarding abortion, Justice Alito, with his originalist judicial philosophy, made the additional point in his Dobbs draft that abortion also wasn't protected by any state constitutions or existing statutes at the founding or for much of American history. This dearth of statutory support includes the historical context of the 14th Amendment of 1868, which, alongside the newfound right to privacy from Griswold, was the basis of Roe v. Wade, ensuring abortion rights in every state. Alito, therefore, argues in Dobbs that abortion, in addition to not being mentioned in the Constitution, is also not, quote, deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition. In concert, these two facts pointed Alito and the majority to kick the issue to the states to decide for themselves, rather than nine robed judges from Washington telling the states what to do. As noted earlier, this line of reasoning should also make us think that not only is a judicial challenge to Obergefell inevitable, but Alito and this majority would be receptive to that challenge. Like abortion, same-sex marriage is neither in the Constitution nor is it deeply rooted in our history, including during the ratification of the 14th Amendment. If the same logic is applied, I don't see how Obergefell survives. And yet, smart jurists, especially more liberal justices, disagree with this seemingly black and white logic. After all, prior courts have found sufficient cause to protect abortion in Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, and same-sex marriage in U.S. v. Windsor and Obergefell v. Hodges. What did those majorities see in those cases? And how can that help guide renewed debates over these divisive issues? Reasonable rebuttals can be offered to Alito's central constitutional and originalist arguments. On constitutionality, advocates for Rowan Obergefell could raise the Ninth Amendment alongside the Tenth. The Ninth Amendment says that the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights 
shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. In other words, we have rights not written down. If one interprets the Tenth Amendment as sending anything not written in the Constitution to the states, then that almost entirely undermines the Ninth Amendment, the purpose of which is to retain rights not written. It has often fallen to the court to determine what some of those unenumerated rights are, as it did in Griswold v. Connecticut with the right to privacy and contraception, Loving v. Virginia with the right to interracial marriage, and how Roe with the right to an abortion did, and then Obergefell with the right to a same-sex marriage. These were not written in the Constitution, but the Supreme Court identified them as rights. And once the Supreme Court says something is a right all Americans have, it is so. Indeed, a pattern of American history is the expansion of rights over time, including securing equal rights for the formerly oppressed and liberalizing voting rights for the formerly disenfranchised. It's rare to establish a previously unwritten right only to take it away. And yet, with Dobbs, a half-century into Roe's precedent, is doing precisely that. Another key component of Alito's argument is that abortion wasn't deeply rooted in our nation's history. This argument should trouble all of us. Before we go on, I assure you that on balance, I'm quite proud of our country's history. I think we're a phenomenally successful country, one with aspirational values that has created a lot of good in this world. I also admire the Constitution, now the longest running governing document in the world, a stability made possible by its separation of powers, difficult amendment process, and check on the majority. I don't think, however, that our history is perfect. And I'm highly skeptical of those who either hand wave our past mistakes or ignore their effects. Fair enough, abortion is not mentioned in the Constitution. But why is that? One reason is that during the 18th century, abortion's legality before quickening was covered under common law, not civil or statutory laws at the national or state levels. Common law was a comfortable place for it, as it's not exactly a topic easily discussed in the public sphere, certainly not back then. There was no need or desire to codify the practice into constitutions, whether national or state. It was covered by common law. Relevantly, those most uncomfortable talking about abortion were men, which sets up another explanation for abortion's lack of text in the Constitution. Not a single woman was among the 55 delegates in attendance at the Constitutional Convention. Women were not in the room writing the document, nor were there women in ratifying conventions during the, the debate over whether the document was acceptable to the states. Nor were there women in state legislatures or courtrooms making a case for women's issues. Nor were there women drafting the Bill of Rights. Instead, men locked in those early words. Many of them were excellent men, of course, but their perspectives were limited. When Justice Alito looks at the deep roots of our history for guidance on how to rule today, he is scanning a document written by those limited perspectives. That's not to disparage the many brilliant pieces of the Constitution. It's only to say that a lack of text might stem from a lack of voices. Without women or homosexuals advocating for their respective demographics, should the Constitution's initial myopia 
continue to blind our current court? Further, is not the Ninth Amendment part of the framers' brilliance, allowing later courts to determine new rights our founders hadn't considered important enough to yet write down? These rebuttals are certainly limited, perhaps even weak, particularly in the eyes of modern conservatives. In Toxel v. Granville from 2000, the late Justice Antonin Scalia proposed that the Ninth Amendment's, quote, refusal to deny or disparage other rights is far removed from affirming any of those rights, and even further removed from authorizing judges to identify what they might be and to enforce the judge's list against laws duly enacted by the people. In other words, judges don't necessarily get to invent rights that the government must then enforce. Scalia, a textualist, would prefer the elected political branches, not his fellow justices, pass laws. In fact, in Windsor, Scalia suggested that same-sex marriage would one day have been protected as a result of the people pushing their elected branches and state governments to do so, which in time would have happened with much less divisiveness than a court decision would create. Scalia believed the court, quote, cheated both sides, robbing the winners of an honest victory and the losers of the peace that comes from a fair defeat. Of course, we must always be wary of the wisdom of the people. It feels banal at this point to remind ourselves that we're not a pure democracy, and for good reason. Both our country and our 50 states are republics, with branches of government tasked with both representing the consent of the governed and the rule of law. Our framers were concerned with protecting the rights of citizens against the will of the majority. So just because a majority of citizens in a state think a right should be taken away, does not necessarily mean that it should. Nevertheless, Scalia, were he alive today, would say Dobbs was the natural response to Roe. Since Roe and Obergefell took the more aggressive judicial route, here we are still fighting over it, with each right as fragile as it has been in years. With that in mind, how might liberals facing an unfriendly court use the political arena to advance their cause. And that sets up, finally, question number five. What are the political implications of all this? Democrats are being goaded, and I think they're about to turn desperate. They've won the popular vote in seven of the last eight presidential elections. And it's presidents who appoint justices. And yet, despite winning the popular vote in all but one presidential election of the last 30 years, a period during which eight of the current nine justices have been appointed, only three of the nine current justices are liberal. How is that possible? Well, most perennially, conservatives have outsized sway over the judicial appointments. I once wrote a piece called The Rural Takeover of Washington that showed how rural voters punch above their weight in the Electoral College, where sparsely populated states have disproportionately high numbers of electoral votes compared to more populous states. And they also have the advantage in the Senate, 
where every state has two senators regardless of their size. And so a state with fewer people has voters that have more of an impact over the Senate than a state that has many people. Since it's the president and the Senate that pick judges, rural voters, typically Republican, have more impact on judicial appointments than urban voters, typically Democrat. Therefore, the court disproportionately reflects the will of Republican voters, even though Democrats keep beating them at the ballot box. On top of that, the two most consequential appointments of the last decade were made possible by shifty maneuvering from Senate Republicans. When the conservative Justice Scalia passed away, with nearly a year left in President Obama's term, Obama had the chance to swing the court to the left. But the Republican-controlled Senate, citing the election year, didn't give his nominee, Merrick Garland, a hearing. Then Donald Trump, after losing the popular vote, appointed Neil Gorsuch, a conservative replacement. Later, a month before Trump's failed re-election, the liberal justice, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, passed away. But this time, despite it being much closer to an election, Republicans did act to confirm her replacement, and Justice Amy Coney Barrett swung the court to the right. If this isn't goading, I don't know what is. If, on top of these developments, Roe and then Obergefell get overturned, a desperate Democratic Party will have a lot more pressure to resort to extreme measures. And, under the time-honored doctrine of they started it, they would feel justified. We can assume, for example, that when Democrats next have the Senate majority during a Republican presidency, they will block every Republican nominee, whether that's for six months, a year, four years, or two whole terms. And that's not all. Citing a Supreme Court that consistently deviates from the majority of American people who side with liberals on these issues, if Democrats ever have the presidency in Congress again, including, say, 52 or 53 senators, in case there are a couple hesitant Joe Manchin-esque moderates, they'd be more likely to move forward on the court packing that was rumored, but never a serious possibility. They'll tell us that just like Mitch McConnell's refusal to grant a hearing to Obama's nominee was technically legal, but a big break of norms, so would be expanding the court to 13 seats and filling the four new spots with liberals. Also, totally legal and constitutional, but a big break of norms. The escalation will continue as we careen toward the potential collapse of American democracy. To be clear, I am not a fan of these solutions. Do I want Democrats to court pack? Absolutely not. The next time Republicans have power, the 13 seats would become 17 or 21, and away we go. Keep in mind that I also thought Democrats should confirm Neil Gorsuch. I'm on the record there. I have a whole post explaining why they should do so, despite what Republicans had done with Merrick Garland. One of these parties should be the mature one. Still, I also understand goading when I see it. It'd be hard to blame Democrats if they keep winning presidential popular votes, but don't get Supreme Court justices out of it. They will absolutely be goaded into escalation, and they'll feel quite justified fighting fire with fire. My preference, however, is that instead of court packing and falsely claiming the Supreme Court is banning abortions, Democrats follow Scalia's remedy and attempt to use the political branches to do it in a realistic way. 
It states, not the Supreme Court who are about to ban abortions. Local, elect local elections are not terribly high turnout, so Democrats would be wise to make concerted efforts to win back state legislatures on this issue. At the national level, meanwhile, the Democratic Party's Women's Health Protection Act is a non-starter in the Senate, with analysts saying it's more restrictive of the states than Roe and Casey are. It doesn't have the support of Senators Manchin, Collins, and Murkowski, who could each be talked into a more moderate measure, and so it couldn't possibly get 60 filibuster-proof votes in the Senate. If Democrats truly cared about a woman's right to choose, they should more seriously consider being in line with the bulk of the American people. Codify full early-term abortion rights with later exemptions for fetal abnormality or health of the mother. This is actually where much of Europe is now, a rare example of European policy being less liberal than American policy. Of course, such a bill would bring the country remarkably close to the Mississippi 15-week ban, which triggered Dobbs v. Jackson in the first place. I can't imagine Democrats have esophagi wide enough to swallow that amount of pride. Instead, they'll attempt to use unrealistic abortion legislation in order to force Republicans to announce their opposition to abortion on the record. Republicans from red states will all too happily comply, and nothing will get done. However, the issue may be the difference in a couple key Senate battlegrounds, but that's no sure thing. As for same-sex marriage, now is absolutely the time for Democrats to act. Don't wait for the Obergefell fight, which might be a lost cause. In this moment, the issue of same-sex marriage is not as divisive as abortion. A congressional vote now has a much higher likelihood of succeeding than one after a high-profile Supreme Court case down the road drives up opposition in the polls and gives Republican lawmakers political cover. National Democrats missed their chance on abortion and now have to hope state-level Democrats save the day. But it's not too late for marriage equality. And if they can't get 60 votes in the Senate, it becomes a second stronger talking point for November, perhaps helping them keep their endangered majority. We'll see what happens. For now, I'm Ian Cheney, and this was Presidential Politics for America. <laughs>